I want to start this morning with a big idea, a complicated idea, an idea I do not think I fully comprehend, but I only have two sermons left, so I'm going to work out these, <laughs> these pretentious thoughts somewhere. Uh, and I think this idea, it, it helps give, give voice to the challenge I think many of us experience in trying to carve out a good, meaningful life in our time and place. And the idea is that we live in a society where the rules which govern our economic life have spread into every other conceivable area of our life. Is that a big idea? I think it's a big idea. Okay, so let me try and break it down. Uh, how is our economy organized? Well, we live in a market economy and that our economy has certain rules. And one of those rules is you have to work to earn a living. What's the phrase? There's no such thing as a free lunch. And you have to work hard because there is a scarcity of opportunity and there is a finite amount of resources available in the world. So you work hard to acquire those resources so that you will not be in need. And it is undeniable that we enjoy a pretty high quality of life in this economic arrangement. And not just us, you know, software developers of the world. I read a report earlier this week from the World Bank which stated that the, the percentage of the number of people who live in absolute poverty throughout the globe has been cut in half over the last 20 years. That's a, that's a good thing, right? And I, I, there's surely lots of reasons why that is the case, but I think the, the surplus wealth generated by our global market economy undeniably has something to do with it. Now, You'll be relieved to know I am not going to opine about economic matters too much. I, have no, I, have the, I don't have the desire or the knowledge to do so. What keeps me up at night are not broad structural forces. Uh, I'm a pastor, not a pundit. So I think about people. And I specifically think about people as they languish because the way in which our economy has, is organized, I think, has spread into lots of areas of our life. And it has robbed us of the freedom and the joy that I believe God wants for us. And when I th talk about that, I'm not merely thinking about how many hours of our day are spent working, though that's undeniably part of it. I'm thinking about, again, how we kind of internalize the rules of supply and demand and how it colors everything that we do. So I'm thinking about things like there's this phrase going around the internet right now, the spirituality of productivity. I'm thinking about how we conceive of our most important relationships in purely contractual terms. I'm thinking about the delusion that we can purchase happiness in the marketplace. And I'm thinking perhaps first and foremost how our understanding of God can be so easily likened to a sort of cosmic accountant who keeps our moral record as ruthlessly as creditors determine our, uh, our lenders determine our credit scores, our banks our net worth. And the reason why all this economic gibberish is, I think it's relevant to our passage from Romans 5, is because in this passage, Paul brings us into a world that is governed by a very different kind of logic. We live and move and have our being in a market economy 
Through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God ushers us into a gift economy, an arrangement or a way of relating to the world where the most important and valuable feature of our life is not something we work, it's not something we earn, but it is something that God freely gives us at great cost to himself. Our reading from Romans 5 starts in verse 6, and it picks up directly where we left off last week. This whole unit, it's Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. It's an unbroken paragraph, and it is a meditation on the glorious benefits that are conferred upon us or that are given to us in Christ. Paul makes these fantastic statements. We have peace with God. We stand in the grace of God. We can be confident because in Jesus Christ, God is on our side. But then why, and this is the inevitable, timeless question, why do we still experience such hardship and adversity even in Christ? Why do we sometimes experience opposition as Christians? And why are people who are trying their very hardest to live a life that is pleasing to God still get cancer diagnoses and and broken down cars and bouts of unemployment and have marriages that fall apart? How can we be so confident and so assertive in saying that God is favor and love rests upon us when we experience such headwind? That is the question that Paul is explicitly dealing with in this text. And he says, well, here are two ways, two reasons why even in the midst of difficult things, you can be confident that God has acted towards you irrevocably in Jesus. And the first thing, and this is what Peter talked about last week, is that the Spirit of God has been poured into our hearts. And so that we don't just theoretically recognize, we emotionally feel loved by God. He says, hope will not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. We perceive, we sense at a very deep level that we are indeed loved and cared for by God. And that, in the midst of headwind, creates a sense of, yes, God is going to see me through this. So that's one thing. And the second thing Paul does is he points to something even more solid, something that's not subjective, something that is anchored in human history in time and in space, he says, God's love and God's commitment to you has been proven once and for all in this, that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. In the thought world, that's a phrase, in the thought world of St. Paul, the essence of loving is giving. Love, this kind of abstract notion of love, is made concrete in the act of giving. And the depth of love that is displayed in the act of giving is reflected in two things. The costliness of the gift, right? Does that make sense? Like a, you know, lollipop or a new car, you know? What's more costly? And the worthiness of the recipients, So the depth of love that is revealed in the act of giving is reflected in the costliness of the gift and the worthiness of the recipients. And the cost of God's gift to us in Jesus Christ is like 
It's not, I mean, it's, I don't want to say it's not easy to understand, but you can conceptually get it, right? In previous ages, God would send angels or God would inspire prophets to bring truth to his people and call them back to God. But in the fullness of time, God sent his very word, God's very son, God's own being to secure our salvation and life. It was indeed a very costly gift. What about the worthiness of the recipients of said gift? People like you and me who have received God's gift in Christ. Well, Paul uses four, uh, shall we say, unsparing words to describe us. We're sinners, which means we've missed the mark of the life God wants for us. We're ungodly, which is a variant of that term, but it essentially means we have failed to honor God as God. Our religious affections are disordered, you might say. We're powerless, which means we don't have a lot to contribute to the equation, right? It's not like God gives us just the little bit that we need to put us over the edge. No, we're, we're kind of helpless, not in terms of our ability to make a decent amount of money or even be a relatively moral, virtuous person, but in our ability to love and honor God as God and bear God's image in the way that God intended in the garden. We are powerless to fulfill that aspect of our vacation. And then finally, and uh, most bitterly, Paul says we are enemies. Enemies? Enemies. What does that mean? We're enemies of God. You are God's enemy. Well, partly that means, well, not partly. I think this is actually what it means, is that apart from God's love moving towards us in Jesus Christ, we are locked in opposition to God and his ways. This is, I think this is actually a very important feature of Uh, to sound high-minded, New Testament anthropology, how the New Testament understands the human person, that we, left to ourselves, are not in neutral. We are in drive, in the opposite direction. And so, and God, who is perfectly righteous, God who stands for everything that is good and that is beautiful and that is true in the world, cannot be indifferent to his creatures moving actively away from him. And so in some sense, we are relationally estranged from the God who made us. And we have to be reconciled to God, but God in some ways has to find it within God's self to be reconciled to us. Because God cannot be indifferent or lackadaisical about that which is inimical to, gosh, sorry, that which is um, contrary to his good and benevolent purposes. So we are sinners, we've missed the mark. We're ungodly. Our religious affections are just out of sync. We're powerless. We can't do anything about it. And we are locked in a manner of life that does not befit God's true purposes for humankind. So, to review this whole thing, God's gift to us is very costly. It is God's own being. This is the real scandal, I want to say, of the Christian faith, that when Jesus Christ is dying on the cross, it is God himself. It's not a human being you know, taking the bullet of the Father's wrath. It is God himself in Jesus Christ bearing and absorbing the weight of human sin. And God is doing this act of unbelievable generosity 
Again, not for very good people who just need a little bit more to get them over the top. God is doing this for human beings who are locked into resistance to him. Very, I, I know this because I know him. Well, very many, a lot of you are willing and have proven yourself willing to give to people or to causes that you admire or respect. And some of us, I'm thinking specifically here of, of parents, are willing to give your own, you would be willing to give your own life for people that you dearly, dearly love. You know, what's the passage? Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. But St. Paul takes it one step further than John, whatever that is, 16. It says that God, in Jesus Christ, was not laying down his life for his friends. God was giving himself unto the depths for people that were actively resistant to him. There's a story... I'm 90% sure it's apocryphal, but it's telling. It's a, uh, about, um, you know, that group of, like, British literary celebrities in the middle of the 20th century? C.S. Lewis, the guy who wrote Lord of the Rings. What's the other one? Uh, Charles, yeah, I don't know who that is, but Charles Williams. Uh, you know, there's all these British liter- Christian literary celebrities, G.K. Chesterton, <laughs> sitting around a pub having this philosophical conversation. What is one word that best describes what the Christian faith is all about? You know, they're in deep meditation. And then one of them says, I think the best word is sacrament. Sacrament. What does that mean? I don't totally know. But I think what it means is that the created world has been redeemed and now participates in the being of God. Sacrament. And so everyone kind of murmurs in hearty British approval. And then one of them says to C.S. Lewis, well, what do you think? And he's, what do you think? What one word best describes Christ, the Christian faith? And he says, oh, that's very easy. It's grace. Grace. And by grace, I, I mean unearned love. Grace, which is a gift given in complete defiance of merit. That's what our faith is all about. God moving towards us, God giving his own being, his own son, to secure our blessedness and goodness. And that gift is in complete defiance of merit. Another story, this one is true, I assure you. I, uh, I once heard there's this Lutheran pastor named Rod Rosenblatt. And uh, I heard him talk at a conference one time, and he described the moment that he became a, a theist or a kind of a God believer. It was when he was 16 years old, and he was, he's, he's an older gentleman, so he was driving his father's uh, Buick 8, and he um, wrecked the car, and he had been drinking, and he was with a bunch of his friends who had likewise been drinking. So he calls his father on the phone and tells him what happened, and the first thing his father asks is, are you okay? And he says, yes. And then Rod told his father, look, it's not just that I crashed your car, I had been drinking when I crashed your car. And later that night, um, Rod describes being in his father's study and weeping and weeping, just so ashamed and so incriminated and so uh, persuaded of his own culpability, right, or of his own guilt in this matter. And then Rod's dad looked at him. He says, son, how about tomorrow we go get you a new car? And Rod says, in that moment, that's when God's grace, God's gift given in defiance of merit, left the kind of theoretical plane and became searingly real. And Rod said, when he told this story, I'm referring to him in the first person, I've never met this man, but Rod Rosenblatt says, whenever he tells that story, people in the audience, some people get angry. Like, what do you mean? 
Like, is that, is that parenting advice? Like, your dad didn't punish you? How is that possible? And this is not parenting advice, but Rod's point is in that moment, he did not need to be convinced of the bad thing that he had done, right? He was a sinner. He was ungodly. He was powerless. And it was in that moment, in the, you know, the nadir, gosh, in the lowest point of, of guilt and, you know, self-incrimination, God, Rod's father, moved toward him and gave him this wonderful gift in defiance of merit. So to return to the point I was trying to make at the beginning of the sermon about the economy and the logic of God's dealings with humankind, what I'm trying to say is that God works in this world of gift and that we stand and we live and move and have our being in a world of scandalous generosity. And in the world that we are in, as believers in Jesus Christ, we don't need to, to jockey for position, or we don't need to hoard blessings, or we don't need to be concerned that we will one day run out. There is no scarcity. There is always enough. God is always moving towards us in Jesus Christ. And we can rest in the indisputable fact that it was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. The uh, theologian Catherine Tanner, she uh, kind of gets at this with much more eloquence than I have, and here's what she says. This is on your, the front page of your bulletin. Instead of being here today and gone tomorrow, what allows one to turn, to turn one's life around in the present, the grace of Christ, is permanently on offer. It has no fleeting character What prompts one to seize it right away is not the fear of missed opportunity then. It's not that it's on sale for this weekend only. It's the overwhelming attractiveness of the offer. So we stand as believers in Jesus Christ in this world of gift. And we relate to God on the basis of gift or grace, not judgment or evaluation or scorekeeping. And what I want to say here is that this deep, hopefully intelligible thought, is reflected in the very routine, very predictable way that we worship every single week. And I'm getting this from a writer whose name is Alan Jacobs. This is kind of a long quote, but I want you to imagine how our service, our literal weekly service, is organized as I read it, okay? We begin with the liturgy of the word, We hear scripture read and preached. We make our profession of faith. We confess our sins against God and our neighbor. We exchange peace with one another. And then in gratitude for our reconciliation with God and with each other, we bring our gifts to the altar. We call that the offertory. But that just leads to the liturgy of the table at which the ultimate gift is celebrated and received, the gift of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We remember that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And no matter what we try to give back, God always gives more and more and more. Grace in place of grace in place of grace. I don't know if you've noticed, but sometimes we forget, but 
Ideally, every week after everyone has received communion, uh, myself or Peter will hold out the cup. And that is this sign that there is always enough. There is no scarcity in the kingdom of God. Grace is given in place of grace in place of grace. This is the world that we live in, in Christ. How much time do I have? All right, five minutes. Um, I want to do one more thing that's a little bit more practical and applicable, okay? Because this, these, are, these are, you know, kind of abstract thoughts. What Paul does in verse 11, the final verse of this text, is he says, he describes the emotional harm, hallmark of those who live in this economy of gifts. He describes what it feels like to live in the world that God has created in Jesus Christ. And he uses this very interesting verb. The word it's translated in our Bibles is boast. Now, boast is like, who wants to be around someone who's boastful, right? If someone were to say, oh, Nick's very boastful, that would not be a compliment. Um, but in the Bible, boast is like, it's, it has two connotations. It has confidence and it has joy. So to, be, to boast in something is to be joyfully confident in it. And again, to be joyfully confident in yourself is like not particularly attractive. But to be joyfully confident in the Lord, that Paul descriptively says is what it feels like to live in this world of gift. Now, if, if you're like, well, I'm just going to assume that some of us are not living in the, boastful, the boastfulness that Paul and God wants for us. And I'm going to give you one very simple, very practical way that you can, to carry the analogy, access the spiritual wealth that God has freely given you in Jesus Christ. And it is this, to audibly personalize the, 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 the Bible's descriptions of your identity in Jesus Christ. To audibly personalize them. What does that mean? Next, this week, take Romans 5, 1 through 11. And whenever human beings are the subjects of the verbs, the subjects that God, excuse me, the objects of the verbs that God is the subject of, put your name in there and say it out loud. So Ruth, Ruth has been justified by God. Carrie McDonald has peace with God in Jesus Christ. While David Taylor was still a sinner, Christ died for him. Nick Comiskey has been reconciled with Nick Comiskey? That moron? Yes, Nick Comiskey has been reconciled to God. Now, I'm, you know, that sounds a little funny, but I'm telling you, there's something, I don't know why, I kind of know more than I can say here, but I can just speak from experience. Hearing your own, your, your ears, hearing those words create a, a salience or a resonance. You have peace with God. You can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You can rejoice even in the midst of suffering. You know that song that we sang at the beginning, Why Are You So Downcast, O My Soul? People in our psychographic are very good at listening to ourselves. We are not good at talking to ourselves. And there is something profoundly biblical about learning to talk to yourself. I am not going to be overcome by this experience of adversity. I rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. All right, I don't have a good way to land this plane. I am just telling you, <laughs> audibly personalize the truths of your identity in Christ, and that will allow you to access the wealth, the spiritual joy, the boasting that God wants for you in this world of gift. How was that? Okay. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word, 
And we thank you for the invitation to live and to stand and to breathe deeply and to live open-handedly in the world of gift that you have created for us in Christ. Lord, may our emotional experience match Paul's description of us being joyful and confident in what you have given us in Jesus Christ. We love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Please stand as we confess our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed.